Around the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfon. What's going on, Cash? Not much. I hope our listeners can't hear that I'm... I was going to say that I'm feeling under the weather. I'm not really feeling under the weather. It's just my throat. I've got that seasons changing summer into fall it was 30 celsius and then five celsius like six days apart in toronto and it's messed with my voice a little bit so i'm here lubricating the vocal cords with my hot tea hopefully uh not too distracting for our loyal listeners what's going on with you will fun it's been a uh tough few days i'm not gonna lie but i i don't think that anybody wants to hear too white North American dudes weigh in on geopolitics on a basketball podcast. So I'll let all that lie, but um, yeah, I mean, just I'm happy to be talking about basketball. I'll say that. Uh, so I hear you brother. Yeah. Uh, but good news cash. We we've uh, just been informed by the NBA that load management isn't a thing anymore. It doesn't help. All good. Everyone's going to be playing the full 82, dragging their busted limbs around the court. Uh, no, I mean, we got to we gotta talk about this, right? Like the NBA just doing this complete 180 without really showing their work, at least so far. What did you make of all that? I was a little surprised that they actually came out that strongly and said that they have evidence, which, to, as you pointed out, they're not actually showing. Uh, claiming that the evidence shows, you know, there's not really a correlation between rest and a decrease in injury or uh, with fatigue and an increase in injury, even though I'm pretty sure every NBA team trainer, sports science person you talk to will tell you the opposite of that. And, and in fact, that's how kind of load management came to be in the first place. In that the NBA actually came out and said this, I'm surprised. Honestly, I don't want to be too jaded because I know... It sounds naive, but I feel like if if they're actually coming out and saying that they have this evidence, I would like to believe there's got to be, even if it's maybe not (laughs) great or overwhelming evidence, I would hope that there actually has to be something that they can point to. And again, maybe it's something, maybe it's more along the lines of like, they're stretching it a bit. It's not quite what they're insinuating, but I would have a hard time believing they're just straight up making it up. Like there's absolutely nothing they're going on. That would be kind of crazy. That part of it surprises me, but again, I think as we talked about when first talking about the new player participation policy, I'm not surprised in general by all of this, just based on the fact they're trying to negotiate this new media rights deal, which you know could be be worth double a deal that's already worth 2.4 billion a year, and they're trying to guarantee these you know massive media corporations and streaming giants a certain product or or certain stars on the court, right, that they're paying for. And uh, they feel this is the way to do it. I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying I'm not necessarily surprised. No, I mean, I don't, yeah, (laughs) it's not surprising. Uh, It also feels, you know, very convenient, the timing of, oh, suddenly we're getting all this new information that's letting us know. Uh, Here, I'm going to pull up the quote from Adam Silver here. Yeah, and Joe Uh, Dumars as well. Yeah, uh, so Joe Dumars, who's the the VP of basketball operations for the NBA, um, but Silver said honestly, what I'd been that's what I'd been told is that it was the science. I think it may be why the league didn't become involved, uh, maybe as deeply as we should have earlier on. 
part of the discussion today was about the science. And frankly, the science is inconclusive. I think in the case here, the part of the commitment from the league office is we are putting together a group of team doctors and scientists and others and trying to better understand it. One thing I want to make clear, the message to our teams and players is not that rest is never appropriate uh, and realize there's a bit of an art to this, not just a science. So yeah, I don't know. The, the part about like, putting together a group of team doctors and scientists and others and trying to better understand it just feels to me like we're putting together a team like a team of scientists and doctors who can confirm what we would very much like this study and this data to confirm for us like data is always sort of ma- well not always but like often malleable like that where if it's not 100% conclusive in one direction or another you can manipulate it to sort of say what you want it to say and I think in the NBA's case, like, yeah, yeah you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think they want to assure their broadcast partners that uh, the product that they're going to be paying for is one in which the best players in the league are going to be playing more consistently than they have in the past. I just, I don't know, something about the messaging of this and the timing of it just really rubs me the wrong way, where I think you've already instituted this player participation policy that seemed like enough to me without going out of your way to say, well, actually our data doesn't really support what these teams and their training staffs and sports science departments and the players, you know, like all together were deciding to do over the last several years. And so if you see this happening at any point in the coming season, it's not on us. Like it's on them. Uh, It just feels needlessly adversarial. And again, without actually showing their work, without publishing the study, you know, it makes it impossible for us to really say how valid all of this supposed new information really is. And I think the other part of it, too, is like, it's very easy to say, you know, we have evidence to to suggest that um, resting doesn't actually lead to a decrease in injuries as a vague statement without the context of what quote unquote resting is. And again, this is something I talked about when I was actually in support of the parts of the player participation policy is that like, there's a difference between player as superstar X is like literally 100% healthy. There's not even anything showing up uh, that should concern the sports science people. And the team is just saying, you know what? It's our fourth game in six nights, whatever it is. Like, nothing's actually showing up. We just want to give this guy a day off and there's nothing showing. Like there's a difference between that and the sports science person saying, Hey, you know, uh, his hammy is heating up a bit in practice. The last couple days we've played a lot, maybe, maybe find a night to rest them. Right. And like in that case, no, the science definitely suggests that a decrease in workload will lead to a decreased risk of injury. But again, if you just go with the vague thing, it's like, well, there's there's no evidence to suggest resting will decrease the injury. But it's like, yeah, if it's literally just sitting a guy that's completely healthy that doesn't need to sit, and that's what you're trying to eliminate. But we also don't know because we're not in there, and and even the NBA doesn't know this to a T. Is how many of those instances are there actually over the course of a season? Like how many times out of you know the X amount of games that the quote unquote star players by their definition rested last year were actually instances where there was not, like there was a zero need to rest them. That's what we don't know, right? Like how many of those instances were there? I would say not many, 
Yeah. Again, I'm cool with cutting those out. I re- like, I think those should be cut out. But for sure, w- I don't know how many those are. What is that? It like, you know, if again, if Superstar X rested 14 times last year, I don't know whether any of those 14 times were BS or whether they were all actually at the direction of the sport and science people. Like, well, I no, I we talked about this on our last episode. The players are not making these calls, right? You know, I'm I'm sure there are some situations where they are, you know, going to the coaching staff or the training staff and saying, you know, like I'm I'm just like whatever it is that I'm dealing with, fatigue, like a knee issue, a back issue, like it's just not feeling like something I should play through tonight. Like I'm sure that does happen, but the vast majority of the time, like this is out of their hands, right? Like they're not the ones making the decisions on whether they rest or play. So. Uh, to, to that point, Thad Young, actually, I, I just randomly caught it flipping through channels yesterday, but Thad Young, after a Raptors preseason practice uh, yesterday or a couple days ago, uh, was asked about the new player participation policy. And, and you know, kind of to that point about how it's not the players who want to sit out, he did talk about how, like, look, like, we, you know, the dream is to get to the NBA. And once we're in the NBA, we all understand, like, the NBA is an 82-game schedule. Like, we want to play 82 games if we can. Yeah, I, I think that I know he's speaking for himself, not for everyone, but still. No, I, I think genuinely that is an opinion that is shared by the majority of players. They want to play. I think because often people want to apply just, like, a typical, like, professional lens to professional athletes they think well yeah i mean like if i had the option to just like sit out a day of work like once a week and call it a rest day then i would do that that sounds great but i think for a lot of professional athletes they don't entirely think about things in those ways like they're they love what they do they're hyper competitive they want to help their teams they want to play like they don't want to sit out so uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I talk, I feel like we've talked about this a bunch about just like the futility of trying to make like cross job comparisons when professional sports is involved, because it's just so different in so many ways. And I think this is one of those ways. So I always, I, I always thought it was foolish and asinine to like put this on the players and be like, look at these lazy, like entitled millennials or whatever. They don't want to suit up when back in my day, everybody played the full 82, um, but yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I'm curious to see how this all plays out because I think we could find ourselves in a situation where it actually doesn't look all that different, but rest days are just given a different connotation. Uh, and maybe that leads to like more transparency about what certain players are dealing with physically, why they're sitting out. And maybe that ultimately is the goal for there to be more transparency about those things. So fans don't have it in their minds that these players are just, you know, taking a personal day or whatever but yeah i don't know i just don't see who is really served by this i mean i I hesitate to even call it information because they haven't told us exactly what they've found uh and i yeah i mean i i don't know i i just thought like the the uh timing of it was pretty conspicuous yeah that's for sure all right you want to get to our swing players let's do it man Wolfond, as he does every year, wrote some great pieces as part of a series of how exactly would you word it? Your most interesting players of the coming season. <clears throat> yeah. We call them swing players, like players that um, 
players whose performance one way or another could help swing both their team's fortunes and, you know, the balance of power in the NBA this season. I have over the last three off seasons called these the most interesting players because not all of them are really swing players in my mind. Like some of them are just players that I'm interested to watch for one. Like I had Jordan Poole in there uh, who's not going to swing the difference between the wizards winning 25 or 28. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I am just interested to see what he looks like as more of a, you know, a, a primary offensive focal point in a new environment after things sort of went sideways for him in golden state, not necessarily interested in him as a player whose performance one way or another is going to alter the landscape of the NBA this season. But a lot of them do wind up being swing players as well. And because that's kind of the uh, approach that we've taken when, first of all, like when we first started doing this, uh, I think we were writing swing players columns, um, before I kind of took it on as a as a different sort of project. And I feel like when we've done this episode on the pod in the past, we've talked about swing players. So uh, we, we can leave guys like Poole aside, I suppose, uh, and talk more about the, the swing players that were involved in that series because there definitely were a bunch that I would describe as such. Um, but also I wanted, I mean, I didn't want to just talk about the guys that I wrote about. I was, you know, wondering if you had any that you felt like adding to to the list that I compiled. So I had one. I, I thought okay. we actually were going to talk about all the guys on your list, but uh, I we I can. have I have one to add. But then I started thinking I actually want to save my guy for when we do bold predictions because his performance is part of one of my bold predictions, specifically okay. early in the season. And so I don't want to give too much away um, because I I actually think he does qualify as a true swing player too even though he's had a mini breakout already. Um, so I want to save that guy for our uh, our bold predictions episode in the next couple of weeks. So I'm cool to go through the guys that uh, that you wrote about, including the ones that maybe aren't swing player by definition. So you want to, I mean, you brought up Jordan Poole. You want to start you, the first piece I think you wrote in the series was uh, Jordan Poole and Chris Paul, or I can't remember what the order was, but. Yeah, uh, I let's let's go in whatever order you know you're hosting today. You can choose which which Let, interesting players you find to be the most interesting, uh, or we can go in reverse order, like uh, however you want to do it. Let's go. Let's go with Pool and Paul as our first two. So you already kind of hinted uh, about Pool and how you're just interested to see what he looks like in a more primary role in Washington on frankly, you know, a bad team that's not necessarily all that interested in wins right now, but also in an environment where he doesn't have to share the court and share the locker room and share a bunch of time for six months with a guy who knocked him out earlier in the year. So I was going to say, what are you hoping to see? But I think a better question is what are you expecting to see from Jordan Poole this year? Yeah, that's a good question because uh, I honestly don't really know, and that's why I wanted to write about him because there are a couple ways this could go, right? He could look like the same player he was last year, which I think a lot of people would qualify as big disappointment for him, but his counting stats will look more impressive just because he's going to be getting more reps and you know he'll he'll have more opportunity and a longer leash. I, I think what I would hope to see from him is an ability to, I mean, like, I think he's going to be given license to play through mistakes in, in a way that he wasn't last year and that that could be really beneficial in terms of 
like playmaking for one overall offensive decision making, right? That's probably the biggest thing where the talent is obvious, right? Like the first step is crazy. The ability to get to the rim, whether it's as a guy who's playing on the ball or off the ball, just as a slasher, like he just has a nose for the basket. And that's always been the thing that fascinated me most about him because when he kind of emerged a couple seasons ago, because the Warriors plugged him into a lot of the same sets that they would use Steph in, you know, they would do that while Steph was on the bench and then Poole would come in and they'd run a lot of the same sets like the split action and like him coming off of pin downs and dribble handoffs and things like that. And a, a lot of the off ball motion patterns were similar. So they're like, this guy's a Steph light and he has the ability to shoot on the move, but it's like shooting is not really his biggest strength. You know, I think what did he shoot from three last year? It was like well below average. He's a career 33% three point shooter. Right. And I actually don't think that that is a, a really good way to capture his three point ability because the quality of a lot of those three point shots has just not been especially high. And I think in general, when talking about three point shooting, like there should be less focus strictly on three point percentage and more on three point volume and three point variety. And like the types of, of ways in which yeah. you're able to like generate and actually hit threes, yep. you know, uh, c- coming off of movement, spot ups, pull ups, things like that. And I think he has that. Like, I think he has a versatile three point shot, but ultimately I think what, what people missed in sort of trying to compare him to Steph or consider him like a Steph light is that his real strength was just exploding to the basket. And I think it's just, you know, he, he has to refine that decision-making. The shoot versus pass decisions, um, like where those shots are coming from and when he's taking them in the shot clock, the turnovers, like that was obviously a huge issue uh, with the Warriors, especially last season, just like head-scratching turnovers time after time. And 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 like with... It's just with sorry, the ball Robert, in his hands, he, For his yeah. career, like he's three assists to two turnovers per game last year he was like four to three like yeah those are those are pretty concerning ratios for a guy who has the ball in his hands as much as pool does and will have it yeah. this year especially um but I, I mean look i think i i feel like he probably had the ball in his hands more often than people think last year like just because he was playing on a team with steph uh and and draymond too i guess like guys who are higher on the playmaking pecking order than him but like he often played without those guys and even when he played with them you know Steph's playing off the ball a lot like pool pool had the ball in his hands right a good deal yeah so, I, I know no I'm agreeing with that I'm saying the fact that you know the assist numbers aren't very high the turnovers yeah. are creeping up close to the assist given how much he w- he had and will continue to have the ball in his hands is pretty concerning like he doesn't make good decisions yeah if the wizards truly just do give him the ball and say I mean, like, I, I think the Wizards have a pretty good chance to be the worst team in the NBA this yeah. year. Like, it's right now, if I'm saying there's a, a race for the number one lottery spot, I feel like it's between Portland and Washington, and I'd probably give the edge to Washington. Yeah, I'd agree. So if they truly just do give him the ball and say, do your worst, he could lead the league in turnovers. Mm-hmm. But I think what I'm going to be watching to see is like, what is the process like? And if those turnovers come in conjunction with better passing reads and 
you know, there's sort of more errors of commission than they are of omission, where it's like he's actually trying and in some cases succeeding to make more advanced reads rather than he's just like driving into traffic and like making these sort of emergency kickouts or losing the ball because he missed a passing read, things like that. I think the process by which he comes by those turnovers is going to be important. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I just feel like opinion maybe got a little bit too low on pool given how last season went and people might've forgotten that uh, even though he was not, I don't think he was a big contributor in the finals the year that they won the championship, but to get to the finals, he was huge. And even if you look at like the full body of work in that postseason, he averaged 17 points on 65% true shooting. Like that guy just didn't disappear at the age of 25. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that talent is still there. And I mean, like what, what did he average last season? Even in a down year, he was he at over, over 20 points a game and yeah. four and a half assists on 57% true shooting, which is above average for a guard. So I, I just think, you know, look for, for a wizards team that is in tear down mode, uh, I feel like that, like that's kind of what a low stakes environment is good for, right? Is like taking uh, sort of rough around the edges, but obvious talent, and maybe sanding those edges down and helping him rediscover the best version of himself. Usually, low basketball, like you're like poor decision making, chucker, um, defensive liability. That combination is usually no bueno. The one thing I'll give Poole is that he's proven in the past he has the ability to be much more efficient than that player archetype usually is. And I think that's what makes him interesting to me because there are a lot of elements of his game that don't jive with what I want in in an NBA star. But if he can make it work, at least on the offensive end, and find a way to efficiency because of his ability to knock down difficult shots or even create them for himself in the first place because of his ability to get to the rim despite being a guard. Like, you know, he, even inside the arc, he's been pretty efficient pretty much his whole career despite being a guard. Like, there are elements to his game where it it fascinates Shot me. Because, 70% at the rim last year. There you go. Like, I don't like his game and I definitely don't like that player archetype. Yeah. But he has shown an ability to do it more efficiently than players of that mold usually can and so I'm interested to see if he can do it while being, you know, quote unquote, the guy on a bad team, um, or if, you know, he is what I thought he was. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think it's also going to be interesting in the context of what is Washington prioritizing? Because if they see Poole as like a, a building block for their future, then I think they'll just give him all he can eat. And if that comes at the expense of other young players on the team, you know, like getting on ball reps and building out their sort of playmaking capabilities, they'll be okay with that. But if they're actually like, well, we want to see how Poole can fit in this ecosystem with other young players that we also need to develop. And they think he's monopolizing the ball and actually taking opportunities away from, say, uh, Denny Avdia or... Uh, you know, Johnny Davis or Corey Kispert, other guys that they maybe prioritize a little bit more in terms of their long-term planning, 
then it might reach a point where they're like, okay, actually, you're our sixth man now. Or actually, we're putting you on the trade block. Or you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I feel like uh, it, it will tell us a lot about what the Wizards are prioritizing. We didn't even talk about his defense, by the way, which is like actually probably the biggest area that he needs to yeah. improve. But I simply I say he's a defensive if... liability, and that does not go nearly far enough. One of the worst defensive players in basketball. Yeah, and I that's one where I'm like, that's why I'm focusing, I think, more on the offensive side. Because with the defense, I am inclined to say, not that he can't get better, but I don't know that we're ever going to see, you know, Jordan Poole plus defender. So uh, to me, this season will be more about seeing what he can be as an offensive player with a little bit more uh, primacy as a creator. All right, you want to talk some point guard? Yeah, so I you know I wrote about these two guys together because they're both in, they they were obviously traded for each other, and I think the way that I framed it is like it's sort of a a season in which both of them are seeking redemption in completely different ways, and I'm uh, I'm obviously very interested to see how that plays out from the Chris Paul side of things. Going to Golden State as a 38 year old who. I don't know. I guess we were all waiting to see whether the Warriors would bring him off the bench and they've gotten to kick that decision can down the road a little bit because of Draymond's injury. So it certainly seems like he's going to start the season in the starting lineup. Whether he'll end the season in the starting lineup, I guess, is a different story. But whereas we're looking to see what Poole can do as more of a primary creator, I feel like we're all kind of watching to see what Chris Paul can do as more of a role player honestly like more of a passenger and less of a driver of a team's offense so that's that that like kind of interesting juxtaposition in terms of the guys who were traded for each other is why I wanted to put them together in the same piece yeah but also to see what change he can bring to the Warriors to just give them a different look I think we talked about this at the time the deal was done and like why it was so fascinating to me because even though, yes, he will be more of a passenger than a driver at this point of his career and, you know, on Steph's team and stuff. I still am very interested in seeing if his presence gives the Warriors a different look. Like, uh, one, how he carries the non-Steph lineups, right? Like, they're much more equipped to handle non-Steph minutes than they were before. Does Steve Kerr feel more comfortable using some more pick-and-roll sets now that he's got Chris friggin' Paul on the team? I mentioned it when we talked about the trade, but like Chris Paul had these elite catch and shoot numbers, but they were in a very small sample size. Is that something that is explored more? Like Chris Paul as more of a catch and shoot threat as opposed to something that's a small sample size here and there thing. Because if those numbers can come close to holding up in a bigger sample size, the Warriors might unleash, you know, sneakily one of the best catch and shoot guys in the league. So there's all these layers to it that I think... You know, as much as it's going to be interesting to see how he looks in a different role, I'm really interested to see what the Warriors offense looks like with Chris Paul in that role. Yeah, so am I. And I think you have to give him a certain benefit of the doubt just because of what an intelligent player he is. And like, I think that he'll figure it out and, and he will. It's like the opposite of Jordan Poole. Yeah, like, well, I don't want to say that necessarily because I do think Poole fit well there at times. No, I, like, again, I was two seasons making a ago, crack when you talked about basketball intelligence. Yes, I know. Uh, I, but I think it's, you know, 
important. I, I got to be your counterbalance at all times, Cash. That's that's our dynamic. Uh, but I mean, it's just like you you really couldn't like if you're exchanging guards, you couldn't really find a bigger juxtaposition. Like if you were looking at okay, we're gonna swap Jordan Poole for a different kind of guard. Like Chris Paul is about as different as different gets in that regard, right? Like a guy who's 38 versus a guy who is 24, a guy who never gets to the rim versus a guy who gets there all the time, a guy who really likes to play with the ball in his hands versus, I mean, Poole does too, but I think he is probably a little bit more comfortable moving around without it. And it's just going to be a a completely different kind of look, a different backcourt mate. Even the turnovers. Steph Curry. The turnovers, yeah. Talk I mean, about well, different. Yeah, exactly. And that's a big thing for for the Warriors, right? Like they have, almost as a consequence of the way that they play offense, have just been a really high turnover team pretty much throughout the Steve Kerr era, right? It's been, I don't know if I'd even want to call it an Achilles heel because for the most part, their offenses have been very strong. I think they haven't been quite as strong in the last couple of years as people think. Uh and actually, I don't know what it, what they, I think they were like they were below average offense last year, and the year before that, even the year they won the championship, I feel like they might have been like thirteenth or fourteenth, and it was actually their defense that was the the sort of strongest element of the team. So they but, were tenth last season. Okay, and the year they won the title in 2021-2022, they were sixteenth. Yeah, and and I think the year before that they were like twentieth or something. So they've been not exactly an elite offense over the last few years, uh, and I think I, I don't. I think Chris Paul will help. Like I, I really do feel, in terms of first of all the Steph on the bench minutes that have been such a struggle for this team offensively. If nothing else, they have an organizing principle now. Where it's just like, okay, we know what we're doing. We're, like Chris Paul's running pick and roll after pick and roll while Steph's on the bench, and he's probably going to make good decisions. Do they have a quality role man to pair him with? Uh, that's one big question I have. Like maybe Kaminga is that guy. I, I I don't know. I mean, like, like who do you think they they'd want to pair him up with? Like like who's the center? I guess in those transitional lineups when Chris Paul is running the offense? What makes the most sense there? I think it might be Kaminga because I think CP can help unlock and unleash Kaminga a little bit because of his pick and roll savvy. Again, Mm -hmm. if Kerr is okay, finally letting more pick and roll come into the mix. Yeah, or I'm like... I I could be Saric, right? Like, that makes a certain element of sense. He's not like your prototypical dive man he's more of a short roller or a pick and popper but it's not like chris paul can't be successful playing with somebody like that too i think it just that that gets a little bit more difficult because chris paul at this stage you feel pretty comfortable switching against him and i don't think sarich is the kind of guy who is going to demolish a switch on the other end either so i don't know um I think in that case, maybe you want somebody more like a Kaminga who at least has the dynamism to like, I don't know, if they're switching, then he can slip out and he can explode to the rim. Like he's a a lob threat. He's going to put 
downhill pressure on a defense rather than just being a guy who's drifting to like the nail after releasing from a screen or popping above the three-point line where the defense feels pretty comfortable knowing it can keep the ball in front. Um, so I think you're probably right in that regard, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just interested to see all of that. Like the, the offense when Steph's on the bench, how he melds with Steph when the two of them are on the floor together. Uh, and I guess, you know, part of it is his level of buy-in, right? Like we, when, when he's been asked about it, he hasn't exactly sounded enthusiastic or even open to the idea of coming off the bench for this team. So, you know, what, what is his willingness to sacrifice at this point, you know, and like how or to what extent, I guess, has he reckoned with the fact that he is a 38 year old who maybe can't contribute in the way that he once did, but still can contribute to what could be a title contending team this year. Well, I hope he's reckoned with it because if not, he's in for a rude awakening. I think so. But I think, look, the, the thing that you hit on, like the, the he's been one of the lowest turnover point guards in basketball pretty much ever, right? In terms of like the amount of time that he's actually spent on the ball, the amount of creation that he has done for others. Um, he is, I actually wrote about this when we did our Eras series, but he ranks third all time in total assists. And if you go through the top 100, I'm sure it could go further, but I had to stop at 100 because it was just getting too time consuming. So I went through the entire top 100 on the all-time assist leaderboard and only Muggsy Bogues had a lower turnover rate among that top 100 than Chris Paul did. So I think that gives you an idea of how judicious he is with the basketball. And when you talk about the Warriors' longstanding turnover issues, that's where you could really see him help. Um, but yeah, I think... When he's playing with Steph, like, is he, is he going to do what the Warriors maybe want or need him to do as an off-ball player? Or are they going to have him playing on the ball and just utilize Steph as, as an off-ball guard more often? Because that, I feel like we often see this when, like, especially with Westbrook, that's the one where it's like, you bring him in. And you can pair him up, whether it's, you know, you're pairing him up with Harden or uh, with Paul George. It just, you naturally tilt the offense toward him because it makes more sense to have the ball in his hands and utilize the guy with actual off-ball shooting gravity uh, to play around him and play off the ball. Even if, you know, the other guy might be better than him with the ball in his hands, like the offense is just going to function more effectively in that setup. And I don't know that maybe that's true with, with Paul and Steph too, because at this stage, despite the spot up shooting numbers that you alluded to, just defenses don't really pay that much attention yeah. to Chris Paul off the ball anymore because he has this pretty slow release. He's not like the most active off ball mover. I, I don't know. Yeah. It'll be fascinating on a number of fronts. Uh, let's take a break, come back and talk more swing players. Before we do, though, I do want to plug, since you actually mentioned the Eras Project and uh, you writing about Chris Paul, Wolfon and I came together and ranked the top 25 players of the last 25 years because that coincides with the unofficial post-Jordan era, not including the Wizards tenure. Sorry, Washington fans. Uh, so if you want to see how Wolfon and I ranked the top 25 players of post-Jordan era or the top 25 players of the last 25 years with full write-ups for all 25 players, an intro essay 
to uh, help you understand the series and also maybe help you understand why certain players, <coughs> Mello, didn't make the cut. You can check that out. You can go in the, the score app, go into the NBA section, and atop the score section and atop the news section, you'll see a little spotlight titled Air Jordan, but Air spelt like H-E-I-R, like the Air to Jordan. Wolfon came up with that title. It's great. Um, you'll find that there. You can click into that, and you will find all five posts from that series. So definitely take some time maybe this weekend to check that out. Let's take the break, come back, talk more swing players. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, you have a preference for where you want to go, or you want me to keep us rolling here as the host? Keep us rolling, man. Let's talk Austin Reeves. Because this guy, I mean, we were both very high on him last year. This guy, I think, has more than just role player potential. And he showed it already last season. Like, he's good. And he's good right now. Like, he can be even better. He's already pretty damn good. And he was pretty damn good for the Lakers in the second half of last season. And as you wrote about in your swing player, or most interesting player piece on Reeves, while a lot of attention was paid to the post-deadline version of the Lakers and the moves they made at the deadline, which obviously helped the biggest component of their second half surge was Austin Reeves. And uh, it's pretty tempting to start thinking about like what he could be this season on a Lakers team that comes into the year more complete, more balanced, deeper, making a lot more sense around LeBron and AD from the start, as opposed to having to wait till February. I'm really excited to see what Austin Reeves can do. Um, you mentioned some of the numbers like in the second half of the season. One thing I remember looking at and writing about when I was writing about the post-deadline Lakers back in March or April, I think after the trade, like from February to April, or it might have been even all season, I have to double check, but for a pretty significant period of time, Austin Reeves led all wings in the NBA. Players that clean in the glass um, classified as wings. Austin Reeves led all of them in the percentage of his shot attempts that resulted in a foul. Like the guy draws fouls, he can get into the teeth of a defense, pretty good decision maker. He can shoot, like, competes defensively. This might sound like a crazy question, but, and it all depends really on how good you think Austin Reeves can be this season. Do you think Austin Reeves potentially gives the Lakers somewhat of a big three with LeBron and Anthony Davis? Uh, yeah, I definitely, I mean, if you are, say, considering Chris Middleton as part of a big three in Milwaukee, then I don't think it's at all outlandish to suggest that Austin Reeves could be part of a big three in LA. Fair point. Uh, I think like all the things you mentioned, he's a three level scorer. This dude shot 80% at the rim last season. Okay. Like he, and he can really shoot the ball from both mid range and beyond the arc from both mid range and behind the three point line. So like, Legit, three-level scorer, guy who can really pass, 91st percentile as a pick-and-roll ball handler last year in terms of his scoring efficiency. You mentioned like the, the foul rate. Uh, 
end of the season among qualified players, I think he wound up eighth in terms of free throw rate, like free throw attempts as a percentage of his field goal attempts. And then like after the all uh, the all-star break, which is basically also around the trade deadline when the Lakers remade their roster, traded Westbrook. D'Angelo Russell got injured shortly thereafter. So Reeves basically took on a much larger ball handling load. And rather than that tanking his efficiency, it went through the roof. So 23 games after the All-Star break, he averaged 17.6 points, five and a half assists, 73% true shooting, 66% from two, 44% from deep, 86% from the line on, like we said, a huge volume of free throw attempts. And for the full season, 69% true shooting was, I think I've said this before, but basically the only guy who's better than that, it's like a whole bunch of screen and dive centers and it's Nikola Jokic and then it's Austin Reeves. So I, I really, the only question to me is like, to what extent can it scale? You know, like if you're talking about him as part of a big three with LeBron James and Anthony Davis and kind of rectifying the problem or one of the big problems I feel like the Lakers have had over the last, I mean, pretty much since LeBron and AD teamed up there is like that huge gulf between that big two and everybody else on the team. And then also I think their half court offense has been kind of ho-hum. Even during the season they won the championship, their half court offense was kind of ho-hum. And I feel like Reeves has the potential to solve both of those problems. That like you you look at it and there really aren't a ton of holes in his game. Like we've seen that if he's playing next to LeBron and AD and that leads to him being more in like an off-ball role, he can play that role exceptionally well. If he's captaining bench units or transitional units with the, with those guys on the bench, he can be a lead creator. He has like, you know, we talked before about Jordan Poole and his shooting versatility. I feel like Reeves has all of that, but is actually a much better shooter in terms of his ability to do it off the dribble or off the catch, standstill, off a of movement, all of that stuff. So I think he has the versatility to fit into whatever role the Lakers are going to need him to play offensively. And then he's not like an elite defender at the point of attack, but he's solid. Like you don't have to hide him necessarily. So it's just, I don't see a ton of holes in his game. And really like the only question to me is, okay, you take for granted that LeBron is going to miss time. AD is going to miss time. Those guys might not be operating at a hundred percent come playoffs, right? The Lakers made the conference finals last year and they pretty much brought back the entire team that helped them go on that second half run and make it all the way to the final four and added some depth and added some depth. Uh, I think, you know, I I would say in terms of like quality, the roster right now is about on par with where it was at, at the end of last season when they were, you know, arguably the second best team in the West. So can they repeat that? You know, are they still a championship contender? To me, that is basically contingent on Reeves' ability to, you know, I don't know if he's going to replicate the efficiency of last season, but if he can scale up the volume and just, you know, take even incremental steps forward as a playmaker, as a defender, I I don't know. I think they're kind of, they're basically still there. 
And that's why he, to me, is like one of the biggest swing players in the league. Is like, we just, we've only seen him do it for like half a season. So I think there are, uh, you know, it's fair to still have some questions about whether he can sustain that over the course of a full season or more. But I don't know. He, he looked pretty good doing it for the U.S. national team at FIBA this summer. I, I don't really see any reason to doubt that he can be, you know, the the third wheel that the Lakers have been looking for for so long. Yeah, I think he's the real deal. And I think out of all the players, at least out of all the players we're talking about today that you wrote about, I think he is the truest definition of a swing player among them this season because of what he brings to a fringe title contending team and how much what he brings is desperately needed around their big two. Yeah, and just like a quick quick and dirty numbers to sort of illustrate how good the Lakers were with all three of their best players on the court last season. Uh, they actually wound up, I think, playing more minutes in the playoffs with him, AD, and LeBron all on the floor together than they, than they did in the regular season. But in total, that amounted to 827 minutes with all three of those guys on the floor. And they outscored opponents by 219 points in those 827 minutes. So, Not yeah, bad. with those three guys out there, they're really, really good. And I think they will continue to be. Let's move off this guards theme and get about as far from it as you can from a size perspective, but not from yes. a skill set perspective. And let's talk about these wondrous rookies, Victor Wembanyama and Chet Holmgren. We actually both wrote about the slightly different themes, but like both wrote about the two of them kind of being at the end of this rainbow of like the, the unicorn big man and like the evolution of them and how it's all brought us to this point and to these two guys, Wemby probably more specifically, but to Holmgren too, to these two guys. And obviously sucks that Holmgren, you know, missed last season because of the injury, but it is now cool that they're going to enter the league together. Man, I don't know how much of their first matchup you caught the other night, preseason game, I understand. But like, I don't remember the last time I've been that excited for what I saw from players in a preseason game because, man, did they kind of live up to the billing in terms of like what you wanted to see or like what you were curious about with them. There was a play I tweeted out, I tweeted a screen grab where Wembenyama swipe down at a ball to cause a turnover on the defensive end and the ball I can't remember who was driving the ball was basically in the paint like it was in the paint when yeah. he swiped and he was it. like guarding somebody at the three-point line he was basically. guarding someone at three-point line his left foot was almost on the three-point line and he swiped down at a ball in the paint and knocked it loose to start a fast break that then ended with him throwing down a dunk from almost inside the other free throw line. Just freakish does not describe it. We shouldn't be surprised at this point, given what we've seen from him, you know, at the international level in Europe, what we know that he can do, but it is still jarring to actually now watch it on an NBA court. And if you weren't excited for what both him and Holmgren can do, even as rookies after watching that preseason game, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty exceptional. And I, remembered the piece that you wrote about the two of them kind of they weren't entering the league at exactly the same time but it was after I think it was actually before Chet got drafted that you wrote that piece but uh he was obviously projected to go in the top two and Wemby was on the horizon 
And so I did, like when I was writing this, refer back to that piece you wrote and the the sort of quotes that you got from people around the league about what this sort of symbolized in terms of, I like the the visual that you gave, like the end of the rainbow, right? We've been seeing this big man skill revolution crescendo over the last few years, obviously, you know, with with Jokic winning back-to-back MVPs, Joel, like we're, we're now three years in a row where center has been MVP of the league. And uh, I think we're just seeing the skill quotient at, at that center position rise and rise and rise. I mean, I wrote a piece this past season about how like even the screen and dive centers, the players who you think of as having like the least ball skill of any players in the NBA and, and like justifiably so, I think that's true. They do. But even those players are now capable of making like pinpoint on the move passes, like short roll reads that they are processing in a snap. Guys are able to like create for themselves in the post a little bit more than you would have expected in the past. Like every center in the league now has skills in their bag that they just didn't even like five years ago. And now into the league come these two giants who can play like guards and I think it's it's super duper exciting in terms of, again, going back to like that categorization and, and like what constitutes a swing player. I feel like that applies more to Chet than it does to Victor just because of the team context. And I don't and I, like I don't expect the Spurs to be especially good this year. I'm more just interested in Wemby, like because he is Wemby. Like, are, are we actually seeing, you know, the the greatest prospect in the history of sports that some people wanted to label him before he came into the league? Uh, or are we just watching a, a really good player who will be, like, I don't think there's any doubt that he's going to be a quality nba for a very long time, but whether he's going to be like a Hall of Fame level talent is, you know, maybe uh, another matter. So that's, that's like what I'm interested in watching Wemby for. But with Chet, it's actually like, Man, if if he hits the ground running, like the Thunder could really, really be a force this year, not just because of what he could add in terms of like his skills to that team, but like the specific type of player that he is and how seamlessly he fits into everything that the Thunder have been building. Like he is exactly what they have needed, what they've missed in terms of like they really needed a, a legit rim protector defensively. All the things, I mean, they were successful doing this, but like they had to twist themselves into a pretzel basically to try and like do the rim protection by committee thing that they did last year. Ton of help from the strong side corner, really aggressive digs from the wing, just like help and sometimes over help from all these different spots on the floor to make up for the fact that they didn't have a true rim protector. And now they have one. And like offensively, what he gives them in terms of, you know, like the pick and roll possibilities, the ability to space the floor at the center spot, which is huge when you consider how they come by offense. Like they were just a driving machine last year, led the league in drives by like such a wide margin. It was a joke. And the inside out playmaking that they have on this team between Giddy, Shea, Jalen Williams, and like then you bring in a center who has the ability to like really be a threat from beyond the three-point line or be a pick and pop threat or roll to the basket like I I don't know man I think if if he looks as good consistently as he did in that first preseason game I feel like the Thunder have sky-high potential 
honestly. So he is like not only of interest to me as a a unicorn big coming into the league at the same time as like the unicorn big, he to me has a chance to like actually make an impact on the West playoff race. Yeah, he has the ability to impact a playoff race and impact a potential, I, I don't care how many people laugh at this, a potential fringe contender in ways that rookies usually just don't. Um, and I know, like, I like that you pointed out in the piece as well, like, on the offensive end, this is a team that lasted, like, you talked about them having, like, twist themselves like a pretzel on the defensive end. They were relying a lot on guard-guard screening actions on yep. the offensive end because of their lack of a guy like Chet, who... You know, we talk about the unicorn stuff and all the like kind of guard skills he has as big man, but that is also still a seven foot plus guy who's got the big man skills too and can be the traditional big in a pick and roll as well. So, yeah, I just think the way that he kind of, if healthy, completes them on both ends of the court is really exciting and should be very like exciting if you're a Thunder fan. And honestly, should be scary if you're like a, a rival West contender because this team can be very good very quickly if this guy's healthy. Yeah, so the big questions I have, I mean, obviously, both of these guys are going to have to bulk up and that's going to happen over a number of years. So there will be hiccups and bumps in the road related, I think, to their slender frames early on, right? Like Chet, the Thunder are asking him to play center, at least for now. And he weighs 195 pounds, which is like lighter than most point guards in the NBA. Dude, I'm not even kidding. I'm pretty sure that's around Jordan Poole's weight. I think Jordan yeah. Poole's like 6'4", 195 or something like that. Dude, I like the Kyle Lowry, who's like six feet tall, is like weighs over 200 pounds. Like I'm telling you, most point guards weigh more <laughs> than seven foot tall Chet Holmgren. Like there are going to be issues with that. I do think even if he's playing quote unquote center, like there will be times where we see Lou Dort guarding the opposing team center and Holmgren being more, used more as like a rover off of a non-shooting wing or something like that. That just makes sense. But uh, in terms of like the Thunder's ability to rebound, for example, that puts a lot more pressure on the guys around him. And, you know, I, I think, and we can get into this when we talk about Evan Mobley, it's another sort of issue with, not just him, but with the Cavs as a whole. But rebounding is like a total team thing. And like one weak rebounder can compromise your whole team rebounding unit. But like if your nominal center is not a an especially good rebounder for his position, it's very much incumbent on the rest of the guys around him, the wings, the guards, to crash and to box out. Like if that guy is going to be hedging or switching, playing on the perimeter or just chasing blocks for example like liable to want to help as often as possible and go and challenge the ball the way that you know you might see Chet do you'll definitely see Wembenyama do like the rest of the guys on the floor have to be accounting for that and I think again we'll talk about this with the Cavs I think they did a very poor job of that last season that was a big part of the reason that despite starting two big men together their defensive rebounding was below average um I feel like the Thunder actually are pretty well equipped to account for that. That's sort of what I was building to. When you have guys like Dort, a, a guy like Giddy, who's, you know, functionally playing as a guard, but is like six foot eight, you know, Shea too, right? He's like basically their point guard or shooting guard. Like, I don't know, like 
Giddy and Shea are basically their backcourt, and they're like 6'8 and 6'6. Yeah. And Dort's like 6'4, but he's built like a linebacker. Like they have guys who I think can maybe account for what might be some of Holmgren's limitations as a rebounder. It just fits together so well. And we've been like for the last couple of years, you know, we've been talking about like, like the Thunder being ready to make that leap and like, oh, when are they going to cash in some of these chips? And then last year they make the play in and win a play in game. Like, and they do it all without Holmgren. And like he, you know, as great as shit, like SGA is, the guy's a first team all NBA, like superstar. I'm not saying Chet's going to be that good that quickly, but Chet is the blue chip prospect, like out of this group. He's the blue chip guy. And they're just adding him now. And it's just, yeah, so that's why, I mean, like, he, to me, is legitimately a swing player, even yeah. apart from whatever intrigue there might be surrounding him uh, as this sort of new age big man entering the league uh, at, a you know, an opportune time. And, I, man, I, I don't know. I think if he stays healthy and he is as good right away as it seems like he can potentially be, I honestly think, and again, this is something we'll probably get into talking about when we do our Bold Predictions episode, but... I think the Thunder could be vying for home court advantage. I think that's on the table. Uh, so, I and I also think, like, I, I think I maybe mentioned this in the piece, but obviously Victor comes into the league with way more hype, bigger expectations, more pressure in some ways because he's been, you know, lauded as this generational prospect in a way that Chet hasn't really. But... There's also less pressure on him because nobody's expecting the Spurs to do anything this season. And with the Thunder, I feel like maybe more of what Chet does is going to be under a microscope because he might be playing in some pretty high leverage games. So I think that that'll be interesting to track too. But honestly, what I saw in that first preseason game, and again, acknowledging that it's one preseason game, and then you could take it back to even like Chet's summer league before he got injured last year, and then Wembenyama's summer league this year. I think that Chet's the more polished offensive player right now. Yeah, I'd agree with you. And that's not necessarily going to continue. And I also think like Wembenyama is probably going to be the higher impact defender right off the jump. But looking at it right now, I think think Holmgren is the guy who's probably going to make a bigger impact on the offensive end of the floor. Like his his quote-unquote guard skills to me look a little bit more fluid and a little bit more polished, especially in terms of like the handle than victors do at this point agreed okay let's stay big move to the east and talk evan mobley i'll let you get into the more detailed analysis but i think we talked about this at one point last year too and i was talking about how like i just i wasn't and i'm not as sold on mobley as a lot of other people and not to say like i'm down on him in general I, i think he's a good young player i think he's going to be a very good player for a very long time but like for as great as he is defensively already, man, there are real concerns on the offensive end for a guy that the Cavs want to be as big a part of their future and of their success as they want him to be. Like the reads just aren't there. The fluidity just isn't there. Like when you watch him, when the ball is in his hands, it translates numbers. Mechanical. I get it. He's young. Like he is impacting the game on the other end of the court, but even two years into his career, I still would have liked to see some in- more or like bigger improvements in the feel stuff and in the stuff you can kind of use the eye test for where it's like, like, is he more fluid than he was a year and a half ago? I don't really think so. 
Like, is he making better reads with the ball in his hands when he's not shooting? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Like, and as you point out, that's what I meant by the way, when I said it's mechanical, not that like, it's a problem with his mechanics, that his reads are very mechanical, very like rigid and like, yeah. Um, and I, that would concern me if I'm Cleveland, because I think they would have liked to have seen more growth on that end from him. Um, so far, I think you, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think in the piece you wrote that he shot 36% outside of the restricted area last year like playmaking is isn't there yet like i don't know talk me off this ledge here because i if anyone's you know listening here or if there's a cast fan listening they're gonna think i'm just the ultimate evan moldy hater when i again i'm acknowledging how good he is defensively talk me off the ledge if you even can about the offensive stuff uh well it was his second season in the league it was his age 21 season Mm -hmm. like there's time for that stuff to come together and I would say I think some of his struggles were the product of roster construction. And in, in some ways, that's been improved in a way that I think should help him. So defensively, I mean, there just should be no doubt about how good this guy already is and can be. His first season with the Cavs, uh, they went from being 25th to 5th in defensive rating. And then last year, they were first. Uh, they won 51 games and had the second best net rating in the league last year. I know the playoffs have left a bitter taste in a lot of people's mouths, mine included, but let's not lose sight of how good this team was in the regular season. And let's not foreclose on the possibility that, you know, maybe this team wasn't quite prepared mentally or, you know, like there were various number of reasons they flopped in the playoffs and we can get into talking about that, but I don't think we should just assume that that's what's going to happen again because that's what happened last season. Now, with Mobley and the offensive limitations, I think that that was really jarring because I, I feel like there were strides that he made during the regular season in terms of like his ability as a post scorer, his playmaking on the move. I thought a lot of that stuff actually did start to look better. But then you put him in that postseason setting against a very well-prepared and very physical Knicks defense and yeah, it was really rough. Uh, I had this in the piece, but the, the one that really jumped out to me and it matched the eye test. Like there's a reason that I went to look at this stat when I was writing it because I was like, man, this every time he caught the ball in the short roll, it seemed like bad things happened in that postseason series. So NBA.com, I'll admit it only tracks the possessions that were finished, which means that it ended with Mobley taking a shot, getting fouled, or making a turnover. So 13 possessions that he finished as a role man in that series against the Knicks. Can you tell me how many points those 13 possessions produced? I can't. Would you like to guess? I'm hoping it's more than zero. (laughs) It's slightly more than zero. One. One point. He shot 0 for 10 from the field with two turnovers, and he drew one foul and split the pair. So... 13 used possessions as a role man, more turnovers than points. Um, And then on post-ups, he scored four points on nine used possessions. Now, again, context is needed because on some of those possessions, like on the short roll, there were times when he made the right kick out because he had a four on three. And unfortunately, the ball was just like kicked out to a wide open Isaac Okoro who bricked a three, you know, like that's part of it was the spacing around him wasn't great. And the Knicks felt very comfortable tagging super aggressively 
and making sure that when he was rolling, there was always somebody between him and the basket. All right, so now you have Max Struess, right? And he is, from the looks of it, going to replace Okoro in the starting lineup. Uh, he did, I think, in their first preseason game. And that is going to make a lot of this stuff a little bit easier. It's going to improve the Cavs' spacing. It's going to allow Mobley, I think, to do more stuff as a DHO hub because of what Struess can do as a movement shooter. It's going to make it so that when he, you know, if Mitchell or Garland gets blitzed and Mobley's catching the ball in the short roll, it's going to be a lot harder for teams to throw those tags at him without getting burned on the backside. So that's going to help for sure. Uh, I'm interested to see, like, at the other end of the floor, how that affects things for him. Because I think him and and Jared Allen were already working really hard to kind of cover for some of the flimsiness at the point of attack, even though, and I've said it many times, I think Garland and Mitchell worked their ass off at the point of attack last season. Like we're actually very strong defensively. They were defensive revolution last season. Yeah. But we still saw like they get into a postseason series and they're still getting hunted relentlessly. And it still is incumbent on Mobley and Allen to provide that safety net on the back end. So you then take a Coro out of the mix. And I think, it like the the responsibility on those two guys' shoulders becomes that much larger, and I'm thinking about it in terms of like what Mobley's primary defensive assignments are actually going to look like next year. So maybe they tweak the starting lineup based on their opponent, but let's say they don't. Let's say Struess is embedded as the starting three, and they play the Heat or they play the Celtics. Who's going to be the primary on Jimmy Butler? or Jason Tatum slash Jalen Brown, right? It's going to be Evan Mobley. Yeah. You know? So we, we I, he actually did that. Like, there were games last year where they played the Heat where he spent extended stretches as, like, the primary on Jimmy Butler and held up quite well. Like, he, he moves his feet well enough. He is super agile. Like, he, he can guard those types of players in spots. Like, it's just a different kind of defensive role for him that we're going to see this year, I think. So I'm really curious to see how he can handle that. And, you know, the the offensive development is going to be another thing where you mentioned, you know, the 36% shooting outside the restricted area. That fell to 19%, by the way, in that playoff series. So his ability to kind of do a little bit of self-creation, you know, maybe get, get a little bit more wiggle off the dribble, where he can face up and make something happen out of the triple threat. Um, Like I think there is a lot of room for growth with him. Some of it to me is going to come down to him just like adding a little bit more strength so that when, I don't know, let's say he is trying to create against like a Julius Randle, he can actually create enough separation to get his shot off, you know, to not get bumped off his spot when he's trying to drive. Because he has the skill, but I think the lack of strength hurt him at times last year, and especially in that playoff series. Um, And then if you're imagining, like, looking ahead, I know a lot of people just want him to be a center and think that that would really allow his offensive game to blossom. But is he, does he have enough heft to play center on more of a full-time basis? Because I, I, right now, I just don't think that that could work. Like, I think that would be a huge hit 
to the Cavs defensively. And even if you look at their offensive numbers, they were way better offensively when him and Allen played together last year than they were when he was the lone big man on the floor. So uh, I just don't, I don't, I don't know if he's ever going to like have the frame that would be conducive to him playing the five because he's very leggy, has like a high center of gravity. I just don't know if that works. But if he's a four, that puts more pressure on his offensive skill development. It just does. Yeah. Yeah, and he looks like a four right now. I don't want to rush us through Mobley, but we are pushing up uh, on our usual time constraints here at PTR. And there's a couple more guys, or at least one I want to get to. So Scotty Barnes is one of the guys who still have left, but I will say we've talked a lot of Raptors lately, and we've talked some Scotty too. So I don't know. We don't have to leave him off, but I think we can save him to the end and see if we have time. I want to get to Jaden McDaniels first because the Timberwolves are a really interesting team in their own right as a team. Like, I don't know if you saw, was it Kevin Pelton that put out his like stats-based projections and had Minnesota second in the West? I think he was high on them last year going into the year as well, and obviously that didn't pan out. High on the Wolves last year. What an idiot. What was your bold prediction? Number one in the West? Um, but yeah, I, no, don't, Pel- I don't recall. Pelton's I don't recall stats-based projection has him as the second best team in the West, actually after Memphis this season. Last year definitely didn't go the way they thought it would. Towns was hurt again. Gobert didn't necessarily mesh. Then late in the year, it was McDaniels who punched the wall, right? And broke his hand. And it was Gobert and... Uh, and uh, Kyle Anderson. And Kyle Anderson, that's right. Slow-mo. They got in the whole thing at the end of the year, and Gobert was suspended. Like, just the as bad a season as you can possibly endure given the expectations on Minnesota's plate and like the new look and everything. Now within that, obviously Anthony Edwards continued his like upward trajectory, but if they're healthy, Jaden McDaniels is very much like a glue guy type player that can really bring things together as this elite three and D guy, mostly defensively. Like he is as good as like a perimeter or wing defender as there is right now, maybe not reputationally, quite there yet but in in terms of like ability he's right there with anyone in the league right now he's big enough as you mentioned in the piece to also be an excellent rim protector on the defensive end very much a unicorn and someone that can really help the wolves this year and going forward offensively it's been a slower process but he's got the ability to be like a three and d guy my question for you in writing about him in doing the research for that piece and watching clips do you think he can be more than a three and d guy and do the Timberwolves even need him to be more than that? Because I don't think they do. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say yes on both fronts. I think he can be, and I do think they need that from him. I mean, first and foremost, I'm going to be watching to see whether his ability to not punch a wall on the last day of the regular season <laughs> and be injured for the team's playoff run. Uh, can I, I just need to see some growth in that area, first and foremost the not punching walls and breaking your hand at the end of the season. But yeah, like in terms of the offensive development, like it's kind of similar to Mobley, right? We're talking about a guy who very early in his career is already one of the best defenders in basketball. I had McDaniels on, I can't remember if I had him first team or second team, but I had him on one of my all defensive teams last season. He narrowly missed out. So I don't think reputationally it's like lagging that far behind the reality. Like, I would hesitate to even call it a a massive, like it was a snub, but I don't think it was a major snub. If you consider that like Giannis also didn't make an all defensive team last year, like there were, uh, you know, a a lot of deserving players for not that many spots. 
And so I thought he deserved to be there, but I don't think it's like some major injustice that he wasn't. I think the reputation has more or less caught up to to how good he is. But like the the important thing is that I, I don't think there's a single defender in the NBA who can blend point of attack defense with secondary rim protection the way that he can. So he's already, to me, like one of, if not the most versatile defensive players in the league. And I I think the Wolves are going to be a tremendous defensive team this year. Like they were, I think they finished 10th last year and they sort of hovered around the top 10 all year, but kind of at the lower end of the top 10. And I think they have the ability to be even better than that. And that's, that's like the, that, that gives them a floor, right? And so the reason I'm like comparing him to Mobley is like he already has these incredible defensive tools at this young age, but for the Wolves to fully actualize their potential and reach their ceiling as a team, they need to see more from him offensively. And I, I do think that he has that, I, I think he has that in him. Like the, the usage rate is pretty low. Like he has the usage rate of a role player, but even within that sort of narrow offensive role last year, I thought there were definite improvements in terms of like his handle, his dribble drive game, like the, the in-between scoring where like, you know, if, if you are seeing defenses counter and, you know, like go under screens, potentially if he was running those pick and rolls, like his ability to kind of like pull up from mid range or, like keep his dribble alive, get a rescreen, chisel his way toward the basket, hit a push shot. That stuff started to improve, I think, as the season went along. And then he shot 40% from three on a pretty low volume, but like that's that makes him a more dangerous off-ball threat and then also gives him the opportunity to attack closeouts, which is something that I thought he did quite well. And, you know, he's a really good finisher inside. So if you're giving him closeouts to attack and he could do that with, you know, those big loping strides of his and get on top of the rim in a hurry. He's going to be able to finish most of the time. And that just results in him, you know, look, he was a 12 point a game scorer last year, but he did it on 61% true shooting. So I think what we're looking to see is like, you know, how much can, can he uh, expand the usage while maintaining that efficiency and just like continue to grow as a guy who can do stuff with the ball in his hands. Like, why is it that you think that the the Wolves don't need that from him? Just because Edwards is going to be the guy and like Towns can do a lot of stuff with the ball in his hands and he just needs to be more complimentary? Yeah, I just think when you consider how good Edwards is on the offensive end, like what Edwards can do on the offensive end and how ball dominant he already is and probably will continue to be in this offense, and you combine that with you know Towns' big man skills, I don't really think you need another guy like who needs to dominate much of the offense or who needs to take maybe take parts a strong word but I I really don't think they need another guy who needs to take part in the offense that much as like a primary type initiator type I think they just need someone who's more of a connector who's more of a a shooter who finds the right spaces off the ball and I, I think McDaniels is almost already like a pretty refined version of that and is getting better and so that's why I think there's room to grow, but I think even within that role, I think if he just continues to excel in that three and D role, to me, I think that's all they really need. Yeah, no, I, I didn't want to make it seem like he deserves to be like running a ton of primary pick and roll next season. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. They have Edwards, they have Conley, you know, they're going to be doing 
uh, a lot of stuff with Towns from the elbow and the high post. They got to keep Gobert involved somehow. So I do think it's going to be more mid-possession stuff. But that stuff is still really important. And, if, and like, you, for sure. Because the question you asked was like whether they need him to be more than a 3 and D guy. And I think Fair. undeniably, yes. Yeah. Like he needs to be a guy who is not just spotting up, but is actually like, if he's a release valve, you know, catching the ball mid-possession, can he run a secondary pick and roll? Uh, can he extend an advantage? You know, can he just keep the gears moving rather than letting them grind down because he's not that confident in his ability to do something off of the catch uh, other than take a jumper. And I think we started to see that last year. And I think there's more of that in there. So yeah, I, I think when you're talking about a connector, I think he has the ability to, to do that at a really high level. Um, playmaking is a big part of that, that I think needs to improve. Uh, I think he could still stand to tighten up the handle a little bit. And, you know, apart from that, uh, can he sustain the three-point shooting? Because, you know, the year before last, he shot like 30% from deep. Then last year, he's up to 40%. For his career now, he's at 36% on 719 total threes. And I think the stabilization point is around 750, where supposedly that's when you start to get the true measure of somebody as a three-point shooter. Um, but even, like, if he settles in around 36%, I think that's fine if he can do all this other stuff we're talking yeah. about. But like we've been saying with some of these other guys, I think the versatility of that three-point shooting is going to be important. And right now, he is pretty much a standstill three-point shooter, right? Like we're not seeing him take a lot of threes off of movement. Yeah. Uh, and maybe he won't. Like some guys just never nail that. Uh, you know, OG Ananobi is a guy who I feel like, you know, he's gotten to the point where he's a high 30s, like even low 40s percent three-point shooter. And that can be hugely valuable given his ability to defend and like also do other stuff with the ball in his hands, but like he is not a movement shooter and probably never will be just because his body is like a little bit too rigid for that. Uh, and that might be true with McDaniels as well. But as long as he's capable of like eliciting closeouts, I think that that's still going to be a boon to Minnesota's offense because he, he can attack those closeouts and make good things happen when he's able to put the ball on the floor. I can't wait to hear your bold prediction about the Wolves this season. Man, I, I'm very scared by how, it, like, back in I already am I on can this tell. team. I can tell. And, I love uh, it. I, I just, I don't know. I guess I'm going down with the ship, right? Like, I've, I've hitched my wagon to this. You're going down with uh, the greatest big man shooter in history. <laughs> Self-proclaimed and yeah. false. We're, we're 80 yeah. minutes deep. Did you, did you want to talk some Scotty Barnes? Is there anything about Scotty Barnes that you feel you haven't talked about in our last couple discussions about the Raptors. No, honestly, like yeah. I, if we I haven't encourage everyone enough, to go read Wolfon's piece about him. I'm just no, saying like, yeah, go, go read that piece, but honestly, I think, or, or go read Samson's piece where he literally watched every single pick and roll that Scotty ran last year. That's probably going to give you a more comprehensive look at some of the issues with him as like a, an initiator. But again, the only thing I want to say, and I hope I've said it enough at this point to hammer it home because I feel like I've started to come across as like a big Barnes skeptic. I believe in Scotty Barnes. Like I believe that he has all-star upside and can be a really good player for a really long time. I, I just don't know that I believe in him in the context of this Raptors roster and of what they are, at least in terms of their messaging, 
asking him to do this season. Now, maybe that's all a little bit overblown. And like the idea of him as a quote unquote point guard is really just a lot more of what we have seen him do the last couple of years, which is like bring the ball up the floor, like be something of a point guard in transition. But in the half court, it's more, you know, trying to facilitate stuff from the elbow, cutting things like, like he's more of a kind of power forward in the half court and like a, a point guard in transition. If that's the case, like, yeah, giddy up. I think it, like last year was probably a blip and he is going, I mean, I don't know if he's going to make a huge leap this year because again, I don't know that the roster context is super conducive to his development, but the reason he's here is I think the Raptors have a ton riding on that development. They obviously believe in it to the point that you're, seeing them not willing to put him on the table for guys like Kevin Durant and Damian Lillard. And they are openly, well, I guess they're not openly talking about it, but it's clear they are talking about trading their current best player in order to reorient their timeline around Scotty Barnes. So if he disappoints again this season, I feel like that is going to raise a lot of red flags about where the Raptors are going. And uh, that's why I think, yeah, I mean, unfortunately it's like a lot to put on a third year player, but there is a lot riding on his development this season. And that's, that's why I couldn't exclude him from this. I think he's going to have a bounce back year. And I think not to oversimplify it, but I really do think he learned a lot from last season in terms of preparation for the season and the kind of shape he has to get himself into and the kind of focus he needs to bring into a season. Because I think anyone who was around this team last season, like whether closely as a beat reporter, whether us who were at the arena do like covering other stories, but being there and still being around the team, just even fans that follow the team really closely and like have a good eye for these things could tell that he was not in the same physical shape or conditioning or like even mindset he was early last season as he was the year before like it's something that multiple people have written about it's something that people have reported that other players on the Raptors sensed and if you listen to him either at media day or in training camp and preseason stuff so far even the way he looked in that first preseason game he looks more locked in and again I I realize that this might sound like an oversimplification just be like well he's more ready this year but I, I really do think he learned from last season's disappointing year that it's maybe not as easy as he made it look in his rookie year and the league adjusts to you and especially if your team's going to give you more responsibility you got to be ready man physically mentally conditioning wise it seems at least from what he's saying and how he looked even in that first preseason game it seems like he took all that to heart and did learn from it and i believe if that's the case he'll have a bounce back year now how much of a bounce back year I have and whether it's actually good enough to carry this really nonsensical roster, you know, above what it should. I don't know, but I do think he'll bounce back. Yeah. Well, he's talked a lot about conditioning specifically. And I, I asked him and, on media day, like if he did anything different this year after last year, and he, I don't know if you remember, but he literally said, I did a lot more running. Like I just went outside and ran. And when I asked him why he did that, like what's different this year as opposed to last year. And he said, I need like, I needed to be in better conditioning, especially if they're going to put the ball in my hands more. Right. And that does make sense. Like that tracks if the idea of him as a point guard is actually just we're going to have him run the break as often as possible. That's where his playmaking can really play up. He's a 
actually a pretty good rebounder. Like he can rip the ball off the rim and start the break himself. Or, you know, we could throw hit ahead passes to him and have him orchestrate against a scrambled defense. Like that is going to involve a lot of running. So yeah, if he is amping up his conditioning in preparation from just being in transition all the time, that makes sense. Because then he can actually be a point guard because the Raptors will just never actually be facing a set defense. Like I think in that first preseason game, I want to say the number was 27%. Like that's the portion of their offensive possessions they spent in transition, which is like uh, the Grizzlies led the league last year at 20%. So not saying that's sustainable, but if the Raptors can, uh, you know, spend something like 20% of their possessions in transition, that's going to go a long way toward papering over the limitations that mainly plague them in the half court. So there you go. Scotty Barnes, just running all the time. That's what the season is going to look like for him. I think that's what Dark Royakovic wants it to look like. Yeah, that makes sense, man. Yeah. That's, that's the way. That's the way to work around their limitations. It really is. All right, you want to get to a fan shout-out and get out of here? Yes, sir. After a classic 85-minute pound the <laughs> All right, this week's fan shout-out goes out to Vatsal Patel. I hope I got the pronunciation of your first name right. Says he's been uh, listening to us, clearly a Raptors fan, because he says he's been listening to us since the championship year. I think we know what that means, 2019. And I mean, I could be wrong. He could be a, a Bucks fan listening since 2021 or a Lakers fan listening since 2020, but pretty confident he's a Raps fan who's been listening since 2019. Checked in on Instagram to say, thinks we have a great show, loves listening to it, and uh, loves listening to it on his commute specifically. So Vatsal, we hope that uh, we make your commute at least a little easier. We know what getting around the greater Toronto area, if that's where you are, is like during rush hour. So if we can help that commute in any way and ease the pain of that commute, we are we're happy to do it and we're glad to hear that we have done it. So thank you for supporting the show for as long as you have, four years now. We have a couple fan shout outs banked for the next couple of weeks, but we still encourage you to reach out in the, the usual ways through social media, as Wolfon um mentioned last week or a couple of weeks ago on Spotify now as well. And uh, let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like, maybe what you don't like about the show. And we will get you the shout out that you deserve just like we got Vatsal and, and also shout out Vatsal because he originally reached out on August 9th via Instagram. And I told him we'd get him a shout out. And uh, just obviously because of the way it works out in the summer with us taking some time off and then not being in the same episodes, not doing shout outs every week. It took over two months for us to get Vatsal his shout out. So happy we were finally able to do it and uh, well-deserved. So, Thanks to Vatsal. Thanks to all of our loyal listeners. Hope this uh, 85 to 90 minute pod was worth it for you. Worth the time investment. And we'll be back next week to continue with more season preview type content. Until one of those future season preview episodes. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.